Amen. Let us turn together now to the book of Judges, chapter 7. And this is the first of several passages that we will uh, look at, or uh, at least that I'll read. Uh, You don't have to turn to them all. I want to follow up on what we considered this morning and uh, look at things in a little broader scope and other examples. But we saw this morning how that God honored the faith and the faithfulness of the two spies named Caleb and Joshua. We saw how that they were willing and more than willing, they were eager and ready to undertake what was, humanly speaking, impossible. To go up against a bunch of giants and strong people and strong cities and to take the land that God had promised to give to Israel. God honored those two men in this way. They were the only two of their generation in the nation of Israel who actually went and fought giants. All the rest of them died, not just the other ten spies, but all of their generation. A very large number. All died there outside of the land of promise. Caleb and Joshua were the only two of their generation that got to finally take possession of the land. And I want to look at a few examples, uh, other examples in Scripture of how God blessed and used a few people. And when you compile this list, it's quite impressive. The first that I would point out is here in the book of Judges with this man named Gideon. One of the judges in the days of the judges before there were kings in Israel. And I'm, I trust that you're familiar with the details because I'm not going to take time to tell the whole story. But there were Midianites, uh, Gentiles who were uh, oppressing Israel there in the land of promise. They had gone in now. They had taken possession of it. Caleb and Joshua were um, dead and gone. And Gideon was a man that God raised up to defeat these enemy invaders known as Midianites from the land of Midian. And according to the opening verses here in chapter 7 of the book of Judges, 
Gideon started out with an army of 32,000 men. And God said, that is too many. Look at uh, verse 2. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, or you know, boast themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. So, it goes on to tell us here how that God whittled down <clears throat> the army from 32,000 to 300. From 32,000 to 300. And then God says, that's the right number. Now, we would have looked at things and said, 32,000, that may not be enough. We would say, 3,000 is far too few. There's no point in those men even getting anywhere near a battle. But God had other plans. God says, 300 is the right number. That is the number that will give God the glory. Because no one will be able to say it was that big army of Israel that accomplished this victory. They'll have to say it was God who accomplished the victory with this little few hundred people. God used small numbers so that he would receive all the glory. And God did there with the Midianites and those 300 men of Israel what was impossible, uh, humanly speaking, what could not be explained, what, what man could in no way take credit for in any way. The Lord accomplished, and he got the glory. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe that this is what God does? That he whittles things down sometimes to a small number so that he gets all the glory? And I'm just going to turn to some of these other passages. I think you're familiar with them. In 1 Samuel 14, we see Saul, King Saul now. We move forward uh, some generations and we see King Saul's army in Israel uh, greatly outnumbered, hardly enough to even be called an army in comparison. And they seem uh, to be paralyzed in fear. And then one day, Saul's son, Jonathan, says to his armor-bearer, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised, or these Gentiles. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint 
to the Lord to save by many or by few. He says God is not limited by small numbers and God is not aided by large numbers. He says, let you and me go. Just you, just the two of us. Let's go over there and confront the Philistines and see what God will do. And of course, the rest of the chapter tells the details of how that this amazing victory was accomplished. And in this case, God did not even use 300. He used just Jonathan and his armor bearer, or at least that was the initial assault. That, that, was, that was the tip of the spear, we might say. God is not restrained or limited by numbers. Do we believe this? Has anything changed? Has God changed? You're familiar with David, a few chapters on, going to fight Goliath. Everyone else is afraid of Goliath. He's one of those giants. One of the few remaining ones. Or, or at least a, maybe offspring of, of, and there's just a few of them left. But this giant Goliath met in David one who came to him in the power of God himself. David is such a model to us here of fearlessness, boldness, confidence in God. David wasn't going in his own strength. He states it very clearly here. And so David and Goliath have this little conversation before the, the rock starts flying. And David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's, that's the point that David was out to prove, that there's a God in Israel and that he's the only true and living God. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Well, hearing that, Goliath was just as angry as, as he could be. and They engage in the battle, and before Goliath can even make a stroke, he's down on the ground dead with a rock sunk into his head from David's little shepherd sling. <clears throat> In this case, God used not 300, not even two, but one. Just one young man who 
had confidence in God. Do we believe this? Do we believe this really happened? Do we believe that God works this way? There's another king later on in Israel named Asa. And there's a battle spoken of in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And in this battle, the, uh, there's a group of, that known as the Ethiopians. And they have a great numerical advantage. They have a huge multitude. And it says, Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, is it nothing with thee to help? I'm sorry, it is nothing. It's not a question, it's a statement. It is nothing with thee. In other words, it's, it's easy. It's nothing for you to help whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. That's very significant. Asa's prayer was not, don't let man prevail against us. It's don't let man prevail against you. This is your battle. This is your Cause This is your reputation that is at stake here, Lord. And, and that's such an important thing for us to learn in how we pray to God and how we intercede, how we ask, and how we look at things. And these are just a few examples of the Old Testament earthly warfare that according to the New Testament are our examples in spiritual warfare. First uh, Corinthians 10 says these things are for our examples and they're written for our admonition, Romans 15 says. And that it's very interesting that so much of the Old Testament story of Israel is related in one way or another to warfare. There's lots of fighting. In the Christian life, there's lots of warfare. Spiritual fighting that calls for spiritual armor, spiritual preparation, spiritual engagement, spiritual victory. And I would point out to you how that in all of these cases, God used a relatively small number, in some cases a just a the smallest of numbers, one or two. But notice that in none of these cases did God use none at all. He could have just told uh, David, stay at home, I'll just send a lightning bolt down to destroy Goliath and and the threat will be over. But God delights to use some human instrumentality. And he seems to especially delight in using a smaller number than anyone thinks 
could uh, get the job done. He always uses some, <clears throat> someone or a few. Perhaps it would be fitting to read these words from the book of Proverbs. There are four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth, all of them by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. And Solomon, the wisest of men, by inspiration, points us to these small things to see what they do, in fact, accomplish with God-given instinct. And and it's it's a lesson to us what the Lord may enable us to accomplish with God-given wisdom. We come to the New Testament, and I'll just remind you of a few examples there. The Lord Jesus Christ fed well over 5,000 people with a small amount of food. Five biscuits and two fish. And he did that intentionally. He did that to show the disciples a lesson to increase their faith in him and his ability. If, if he'd had, you know, a, a semi-tractor load full of groceries and brought them in and uh, had you know, the disciples scatter the food around and spread it out to everybody, oh, it, it would have been, you know, a, a great day, a great, uh, a great picnic there by the Sea of Galilee. But this is even... So much greater for the Lord to take just that small amount of food and multiply it miraculously as only he could so that this this huge multitude is well fed and, and no one goes away hungry. When I was a boy, I would hear a song that had this line in it. Uh, sung at church, little is much if God is in it. Well, that's a good summary of that feeding of the 5,000. Again, think of the mission that Christ gave to 12 apostles, this impossible mission of spreading the gospel, And, of course, he gives it to them as representatives of his people in every generation. But we read right there in the book of Acts how that those few men turned the world upside down in that generation with the gospel of Christ. And it's obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. Working through them, enabling them, we might say multiplying their efforts and, and using more and more who were saved and, uh, and then 
helped to spread the gospel of salvation. To the ears of the apostles, it must have sounded like an impossible task. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yet that work continues to this day. Thank God. Small things, a few people. We come to the book of Revelation and we read about the church in Sardis these words. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. A few. A few. God uses a few. Do we believe that? We could mention many examples and we could take uh, the rest of the day giving examples from outside of Scripture. I think of William Carey, who in the 1790s went to India in, in what was almost an unknown and unheard of undertaking to go and preach the gospel to people in that country on the other side of the world from England, And the Lord blessed those efforts that had such a small beginning. And to this day, the name of William Carey is known in India because of the influence that he had by the grace of God and for the glory of God in that country. God uses small things He uses a few people oftentimes. I think of a man who was not even a preacher. He was just a a faithful man in a small Methodist church. Many years ago, he was uneducated and not very gifted, and we don't even know his name now. And by God's providence, he was in a pulpit on a snowy winter night on uh, filling in for the regular minister who couldn't be there because of the snowstorm. And there's just, you know, 10 or 12 people there. And in out of the cold and blizzard comes a young teenager in there in the city of London. And it is through a few words that that man says in the pulpit that a young Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to see the gospel and came to trust in Christ. And though he had heard the gospel many times, it had not come home to his heart. He hadn't been able to understand the most basic thing of trusting Christ, looking to Christ. It remained a a mystery to him, as it must until God opens our eyes. And we don't even know the name of that Methodist layman. I have read that in years later, when Spurgeon was well known as a preacher of the gospel, 
and very influential, that there were no less than four men who claimed to be the one that was preaching the night that Spurgeon was converted. And I, I'm, I believe I've also read that Spurgeon said he didn't think it was any one of the four. Well, the Lord didn't want us to know. Why? Because that would take some glory from God that he wants for himself, and rightly so. <clears throat> we could look at secular history. and Here in our own country, we have the familiar story of George Washington in that bitter winter season at... Valley Forge, when uh, for you know, many men had gone home or their enlistment had ended and many were sick and many had died and his army's reduced, there's no hope. Officers are urging him, give up the fight. There's no way that we can win this war. We've made a valiant effort, but it's not enough. Dismiss the men, let them go home. And it was, from what I understand, just about single-handedly that Washington refused to give up. And he actually went on the offensive there on, um, I believe it was Christmas Eve, and made a little attack across that Delaware River so famously. And... uh, Went over there and had a, you know, gained a small victory. But that small victory was enough to encourage his own troops and the, those supporting the war and, and the war for independence as a whole. And out of that little unlikely victory came full independence from Great Britain. There are many examples like that. And and I enjoy reading the history of warfare because it's encouraging. And everything from Stonewall Jackson and things that he was able to do that seemed impossible and, you know, George Patton, Sir Francis Drake, and on and on and on. There are so many examples of how that when things were so looked so desperate that there's not even a point putting up a fight, that a few men put up a fight, and God brought a victory. And I always enjoy reminding you of the story of a church in Wales, in town of Hillcliff, it's a much bigger city today, but <clears throat> two or three hundred years ago, it was <clears throat> just a rural community, and out in the countryside, miles out of town, there was a, a little Baptist church, <clears throat> and as is the case in the life of a church over a long period of time, it had its ups and downs, and, and it got into some difficulties and disputes, unfortunately, with uh, uh, a 
minister who was dishonest and so on. And that church ended up being reduced in number so much that they had no men. The only thing left was a few women. And the history of the Hillcliff Church that's been published, that was published, oh, about 1800, says that those few women continued to meet together on the Lord's Day and pray. You know, nowadays, you know, one of them would be the preacher, but no, not then and not biblically. They met together to pray. That's all they could do. And they continued for a number of years, years, meeting together on the Lord's Day at the Hillcliff building to pray. What nonsense the world would say. What a waste of time and wasted effort. When God was ready, he began to answer their prayers. And he sent, of all things, a man to preach. And as they began having preaching services again, uh, a few others came. And at the time that the history book that I have uh, was written, it was a flourishing congregation of, of many hundreds of people. And that's just an example of how God delights to use a few people, oftentimes. In fact, I, I think we could almost say it's more of the, the, the rule than the exception, that it's fairly seldom that God uses large numbers of people. He so often uses small numbers. Do we believe this? So, do we think that we here as a church are too small to matter to God? Too small to do anything important for Him? Do we despise the day of small things as some in Israel were prone to do in the days of Zechariah? Do we think that God will not use us because we're too small to to count? I tell you, I know it sounds strange and it's probably been misunderstood by some when I've said it, but being small in number ought to encourage us. We might be small enough for God to use. We might be few enough for God to use so that he will get all the glory. And none of us will try to steal any of it from him. So let us be encouraged today to think the way God thinks. 
And then, like Caleb and Joshua, to give our best. To give our very best to God and His cause in our generation. Let's sing a hymn together as we close. We'll use the blue hymnal. Number 319. Maybe I should try to clarify something. I don't want to leave anyone confused. We do long for the Lord to give us growth and to add to our number, and we want to see the, the work of the Lord strengthened. But as we labor and, and see precious little fruit from our labor, let us not be discouraged. <clears throat> the Lord will honor the faithfulness of his people. He always has.